The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. For our last podcast of this season, we're discussing a Spanish master in China and a leading contemporary artist from Africa in the UK. A bit later, we hear about Picasso, Birth of a Genius, a major show now open in Beijing. But first this week, it's the Manchester International Festival, the long-running annual event in which new works by leading figures across the arts are shown for the first time anywhere in the world. Among the visual arts projects this year is Ibrahim Mahama's Parliament of Ghosts at the Whitworth Art Gallery. Mahama's best known for his evocative tapestries, made from the jute sacks which are used in Mahama's native Ghana to first transport cocoa, then rice and maize, and finally coal. These often vast works explore global networks of labour and exploitation. His work in Manchester is a typically rich installation, which draws on the history of Ghana in relation to colonialism. The materials have been gathered by Mahama in Ghana over many years and include train interiors from a no longer functioning railway, empty lockers from defunct industrial sites and a space modelled on a disused silo, evoking the promise of Ghana after independence and the dashing of optimism under a succession of dictatorships. At the heart of the show is the Parliament of Ghosts itself, made from seats from old Ghanaian trains that were probably initially made in Manchester or Leeds. Mahama hopes that the Parliament might prompt visitors to think about the present socio-political situation and even debate their ideas in the gallery. Christina Ruiz, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper, went to Manchester to speak to him. So, in a way, you're creating a portrait of a nation through its abandoned objects. Not necessarily creating a, a portrait of the nation that is abandoned. I think I'm more interested in how this idea speaks about the global condition, but I'm looking at it from a perspective of Ghana in terms of the history of the railway and the history of labor. So if you look at the history of the railway, it's not very, it's not just limited to the history of the railway also, because um, there are so many things parallel that have happened across the time. And as an artist, I'm more interested in how I can use maybe that history as a point to start a conversation. We also have the history of the postmodern architecture, like including all these grain silos that were built in Ghana, post-independence that were never used. They were abandoned in 1966 after Kwame Nkrumah's overthrow. And a couple of other things, many, many other things. So all those things are represented within the exhibition. But purely looking at them from a point of potential, how can we use this history and the objects and the decay and the failures that are represented within all this time and reflecting back into our current circumstances and using it maybe to create new trajectories in a way. So that's why the Parliament of Ghosts is important. And it's, it's in a way taking the decay and the failures of history and using it as a premise under which we can begin to look at developing new potentials or new conversations. And there's actually a grain silo in the show. Uh, with a seven-screen film inside and a voiceover. So uh, three components. Tell us about each of those components. Yeah, so the grain silo is uh, also part of a research I've been doing across the country uh, because for a long time I was traveling around photographing all these grain silos that were built in the early 60s that were abandoned. And they were built in collaboration with Eastern European architecture during the Cold War. Of course, a lot of it has been lost in our Ghanaian history because you see these buildings, they are so enormous, but no one ever really knows what they were specifically meant for because after Kwame Nkrumah's coup in 1966, we had a series of military regimes up until we had civilian rule and then back to military and then civilian until we had a constitution in 1992. So um, a lot of that, that 
sometimes I always feel like Ghana is a country which has a very short memory in a way. A lot of it is somehow has been lost in time and memory. So you see them. So they are big. They are like these big manifestations of history, but they are almost like ghosts at the same time. It's very paradoxical in a way. So I thought, mm, why not? Uh, why not uh, borrow aspects of these and then use them for maybe new potentials? So in projects I've been doing back in Ghana, I've been taking, for instance, uh, copies like molds of some of these buildings and trying to replicate them into these new institutions that I'm working on in the North. And also I thought they would be really interesting in terms of combining them with film because of the texture and other things in it sculpturally. So I also filmed a lot of it with drone and also most of the labor activities that happen, let's say, in um, the railways or in um, scrap yards or even in like old factories, which also came from Ghana, uh, the post-independence period, which have been decay, which have been left in a state of decay, which a lot of which were also like destroyed at some point. So I was thinking about how I could compile all these things into the condition of the silo in itself. So... I think the film has been, yeah, it's been since 2014, actually, since I started shooting different aspects of the film. So the film actually stretches within that entire period. And the voice that we hear? So the voice that we hear is actually a, a, a narration from one of the parliamentary debates of Ghana, like post-independence. And you have, let's say, uh, early parliamentarians talking about... Um, discussing issues that lead towards like um, social new social infrastructures about uh, giving, let's say, um, a lot of uh, responsibility to the youth to take over their own destiny, to uh, create uh, mobile kilns that goes into rural areas that help the communities to use like the clay to somehow make building blocks that can solve the housing issues and blah, blah, blah. I think in the early independence, there was so much more effort in thinking about how the nation was going to be unified and also how we were going to somehow go beyond this kind of uh, this post-colonial thing but a lot of which got lost somehow the post-60s period mm -hmm. so the film somehow brings and I didn't in Ghana I've, I recorded some of it in my own voice and other voices but I thought it would be far more interesting to somehow get someone in the UK with a British voice to go over the film so we got one of our colleagues here, um, Francine, to read it. So we superimposed it onto the film. And throughout the show, there are also uh, many materials that appear to come from schools, books, lockers. Uh, and why did you want to incorporate those and, and where did you get them? So the school cabinets, I started collecting those in 2014 um, or so. And it was just as a result of expanding the objects which I was using in my work. At that time, I was mainly working on the jute sack installations at home, like doing all these different projects and also internationally. But I was also making all these specific intricate works like the painting, the two paintings in the exhibition and many other things. And it was just something that I was experimenting with in the studio. So what I would do is that I would go to the schools and I would negotiate for specific cabinets and objects and then I would produce new ones with craftsmen and give it to the schools and then take the old broken ones 
but it's also because I was interested in the aesthetics and the label of it because it somehow also reminded me of the railways and then all the infrastructure post-modern architecture that existed. I was interested in the the marks and also the stains and scratches that had been represented uh, on it by the school kids over the years. And also the exercise books also represented that in a way. Because, you know, when you go to school and um, you somehow are given an assignment and they say, um, for instance, like a question, uh, what is um, one plus one? And then the child writes three. Then he'll be punished for it. And then they mark it with an X wrong, maybe 10 over uh, 2 over 10, things like that. It really interested me because as a child, like going through the system and also the fact that we had to wrap our books to protect them and all that. By the end of the day, they, they gained these interesting uh, characteristics. So I thought the failures somehow represented new potentials. Sometimes you realize that there are other possibilities within that. So for instance, if you write 1 plus 1 is equal to 3, what is what are the potentials of why the, there is another figure to it you know so there were just some of these things so everything that i think about with relation to aesthetics i'm mostly looking at it in purely in relation to what potentials they hold beyond their formal qualities and you mentioned uh your jutsak works um which I mean, I think the first time I saw your work, I remember it was at the Venice Biennale in 2015, I think, where you had created these enormous tapestries or wall hangings of thousands of sacks sewn together and hung on the external walls of the Arsenale. Uh, well, internal, but outside walls. And those jute sacks were used to transport cocoa firstly, and then rice and maize, and then finally charcoal, charcoal across the country. Uh, and you've said that they are about networks of uh, labor and exploitation. Yes. But interestingly, you would have needed your own networks of labor to create something that massive. A lot of your work, you must have many, many collaborators uh, and that itself, does that become part of the work? This, you, you know, you're creating your own system. Yes, I'm creating my own system. And in doing so, I understand that I become complicit in this system that has been made globally, that somehow, somehow through capital and the way goods and things, labor move across from one to the other. But I'm doing it from a point of a certain critical points and realizing that we need to take other steps which can somehow maybe create new ways in which we new points of relation within the world um, so that's why i keep referring back to this idea of potential uh, the interesting thing about this parliament of ghosts is that uh, in 2014 when i started making the jutsak installation and all those other uh, projects i was also at the same time building these um, institutions like community community spaces in the north of ghana which I'm still working on. And the idea was that the capital generated out of the work would somehow go back and change something really physical in terms of creating all these institutional spaces and also communities that can somehow influence the way that we relate to art or the things that discourse outside of art in the 21st century. Um, and of course, Early this year, into, uh, in March, we opened the first space, which was purely dedicated to retrospectives of artists who had practiced in the last 60 years, parallel also to the same histories that I was, I've been interested in with the 
jute sacks and the cocoa, the railways. The... And where is that? It's in Tamale, in the northern part of Ghana. And it's run by you and who else? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, currently I serve as the director of the institution. But um, the idea is that when the institution expands and expands, we because I have a lot of colleagues back in Ghana that I work with, and also uh, the departments at the university. We have uh, the painting department. We have uh, the Black Star Lines, which is a collective, which has uh, some professors and also students and then uh, colleagues alike. So I work with a lot of them and like creating the curatorial work for exhibitions and then all other things that follow. So the idea is that to create these institutions that can somehow contain the growing community and also practitioners that are coming along. That's very interesting. And of course, now you are with a very big gallery, White Cube. I mean, how much of a difference did that make to the opportunities that you have been presented with? And frankly, the amount of money that you are able to channel back into Ghana and community projects like that. Yeah, I was I started working on these projects in 2014, I think three years before four years before I started working with White Cube. But I think it's um, working with White Cube also came with a different kind of potential because it meant that all of a sudden you have more access to more resource with regards to what you can do. And um, for me, that is interesting and very good because it gives me the ability to be able to at least expand my thoughts and to put and to put them into reality. And that's what the idea has always been, not just to make works that are symbolic, because I could spend a lot of my time and keep making like institutional projects and things like that. But I think fundamentally the idea is that in the sense of the Parliament of Ghost, of using the failures of our time or of history, how can we, being aware of that specifically, how can we take that in a material way and use it to somehow change the way society in itself operates? And it's very interesting to have that here uh, in a museum that was opened first in 1908, which uh, was about exactly the same time that the yeah. British were building those railways uh, in, in, on the Gold Coast. Um, earlier this year, you were in Venice for uh, the opening of the first Ghana Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Uh, and every time I walked into that space, it was just absolutely packed. It was crazy, the amount of interest. Uh, and of course, you're one of the artists whose work was included in that show. What was it like to be part of that experience? Well, I think it was wonderful because um, it's one of the things that we also need to be able to create um, opportunity in a way. Um, so Ghana had never had a, a pavilion in Venice. So when it was proposed by David and Nana to the government, um, yeah, they were quite interested in it. But I guess, and I know not I guess, I think, and I know that David and Nana put so much effort into convincing the government about why it was important for this to happen. Um, but at the same time, I also think that it's really important that beyond that, we somehow create the kind of infrastructure, social infrastructure that is needed to develop the practices on the ground, like within the country. So um, it was one of the things that was quite promising that maybe uh, Venice could be a, 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 a starting point that could ignite something that could uh, maybe allow the states to realize why it's important to invest into the infrastructure for the cultural sector in a way 
because we don't really have much of that. Um, yeah, so it was pretty much exciting to be showing alongside all these wonderful artists because Elle has had shown in Venice a couple of times um, together with um, John Confra, Lynette Spocci, Adam, uh, Felicia Aban, um, and Selassie Sosu. This was the first time that they were showing in the Biennale, but with the kind of work that they were showing also opened up new yeah, possibilities and also like somehow presented the scope at which the practice within not just Ghana and the continent was somehow expansive. So, And speaking of infrastructure, um, you uh, went uh, in Ghana um, to the art school in Kumasi, which is part of the University of Science and Technology and Elena Tsui, I believe, also went to the same school. Yes. And it seems that, you know, there's a very rich and uh, lively contemporary art scene in Ghana. And much of it uh, is thanks to that school. Which, uh, can you tell us about a little bit about that school and what you learned there and um, whether you believe it is indeed one of the reasons that, um, you know, it is so important to have that infrastructure on the ground. The difference that one school can make is enormous. Yes. No, I think KNUST has been such a an important decision in my life. Uh, when I went, when I decided to go there, it, I think it was in 2005 when I finished high school and I decided I was going to do the fine arts program. Um, when I got there, there were these new, like younger lecturers, professors who were coming up, one of which was... Um, Karika Chasedu, who had, an, who had started working there not long ago. He himself was a student who had done his, he had done his bachelor's in the same department of fine arts, done his MFA, and then also he had a PhD. And uh, Kisiedu, Boafo, Jonan Prechum, Bojawa, uh, Dorothy Amenike, a couple of lecturers who were like beginning to teach there in the university. And they were, of course, they had a younger spirit, they believed that art was supposed to be more expansive, you know. So the curriculum which we were using before was based on the old British model, the hand and eye. So they were working really hard to somehow change it because there were so many classifications within the um, the curriculum. If you were a painter, you had to somehow stick to the traditional norms of painting in a way. And if you were a sculptor, you had to like make carved stone, wood, blah, blah, blah. But in the painting department where these um, professors were, um, caricature in this group, they believed that art was supposed to be just art with no uh, tie to form, specific form. So they started somehow proposing that the students just use their practice as a way to create whatever they wanted to create. Yeah, so that's when I was a student there from 2006 to 2010 when I was in the undergrad. And within that time, there was a lot of emphasis on experimentation and all that, which doesn't really happen in a lot of schools because in um, in a lot of art schools, they somehow focus on how the artists should somehow focus on the objects that they want to make. But for us, it was far more than the objects. It was also about the infrastructure. How can... The question was always, how can you as an artist make an artwork or create something that can change the very premises under which art is somehow thought about or even perceived or experienced or things like that. 
So that was the basic points about it. So the infrastructure and everything becomes really important. Of course, in the art school, we don't have like a really major infrastructure for teaching and all that. It's like they we always have make a joke that we're living in like the stone buildings, uh, stone age buildings. But at the same time, that infrastructure, I think, is also the ideological premises that the school, like the professors there hold, that somehow allows the students to think that they can expand beyond the infrastructure that there is into other possibilities and forms. And that's when you started going and exploring these disused sites. Exactly. And that's what's led to the building of the institutions and then thinking about the parliament. There's one thing to note that the parliament, actually, when I thought of it, is actually meant for the institution in Tamale. So I'm building actually this parliament in Tamale, which is the, the parliament, which is going to consist over 500 seats. And where it's actually going to be like a, a theater space and then a cinema, which is going to be for the restoration of the film culture in Ghana, which had been lost since the 80s. Oh, that sounds amazing. And will that be a permanent installation? Yes. And how big is your building in Tamale? Well, it's big. It's a lot of, uh, they are different. There are several buildings. So the, um, the parliament um, building, Currently, I'm installing it in my studio space, which is quite big. It is um, probably bigger than all the spaces here in the Westworth, which has been combined for the exhibition. Um, yeah, but um, the idea is to, when the, the exact building is completed in the future, it will be very expansive and it can hold probably like a thousand plus people for like cinematic experiences and also plays and like discussions and yeah all kinds of social events and things like that. And you will fund this yourself? Currently, that's what I'm doing. Is it free entry? Free? It's free entry. Right. Yeah. The idea is just to open up the cultural uh, experiences and possibilities within the space in a way that it can somehow ignite new uh, possibilities, inspire the generation actually to think beyond just their normal experiences every day. This brings me to my final question, which is, um, you've said before that um, you intend to remain in Ghana. Uh, many young, successful artists move to places like Berlin, mm-hmm. and even, you know, your country's perhaps most famous artist, Elena Tsui, lives uh, abroad in Nigeria, I believe, uh, has for many years. Why is it important to you to stay in Ghana? Um to begin with Ella Natri, I don't necessarily think Nigeria is abroad. Nigeria is still part of our. <laughs> it's very. It's not far. It's just a few minutes. A few minutes uh, of plane from Ghana. Um, um, myself, my grandfather came from Nigeria, so a few generations ago, I would have been Nigerian. Um, but it was necessary for Ella Natri to leave and his time to go to Nigeria. If he hadn't gone to Nigeria, I don't think he would have become the artist that he was. Because there weren't the opportunities in Ghana? Yes, the opportunities weren't there. And also mostly within his generation, it was very difficult to think within that experimental form that he was thinking within his practice at that time. Um, but a lot changed, particularly with the generation of caricature and his group. So with that inspiration that the younger ones have inherited now, it's possible that we can think that we can actually use the condition which we embody to stay in a place and somehow use it to change something. In the past, you would have thought, oh, if something is not, if a place is not working, like people always say, why don't I leave and go somewhere else where things are working? Why don't I go to England where there are institutions? 
But I say, no, why don't you work in Ghana and use the rubble and the, the failure, the decay and the misery and everything as a starting point to change the system? Because it makes me sick mostly when a lot of people leave and go and live in the diaspora and they always want to say, they always want to dictate what they think is right. And they always say, oh, but uh, back in Ghana, this doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. And I said, no, you cannot, you have no right to actually complain or speak to the matter. Because if you live there and you contribute your labor to it and you die in the process of doing it, actually, I think it's much more honorable and you're actually contributing something to it, even if it doesn't work. Because that's the only way we can get things done, to be in a place and sacrifice whatever we can to actually change things materially. If not, we cannot do it just by thinking and then also just the... It's very easy for us to talk and have discussions, but actually to take decisions and actions which changes the material conditions of things, it takes quite a lot of work and it takes being in a place. Ibrahim Mahama, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Ibrahim Mahama, Parliament of Ghosts, is at the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester until the 29th of September. You can find the full programme for the Manchester International Festival at mif.co.uk. We'll be back with Picasso in China after this. Before the dawn of photography, likenesses of people or places had, of course, to be captured by hand. Many professional artists made their living from portraits or landscapes commissioned by the great landowners and the rising middle classes, keen to parade their achievements and status. But in addition to those who painted for a living, there were legions of amateur artists whose work also provides a valuable resource for reimagining the past. A set of early 19th century topographical sketchbooks by Lady Susan Percy and her sister Lady Julia Percy to be offered at Bonham's British and European Art Sale in Knightsbridge, London on July the 10th are a case in point. As Bonham's Director of Paintings at Knightsbridge, Veronique Scorer said, Lady Susan and Lady Julia were the daughters of the second Duke of Northumberland and, like all young aristocratic women at the time, they were schooled in drawing and painting. Lady Susan, in particular, was a highly talented artist, and she sketched the family home at Ormwick Castle and the many places she visited throughout the country avidly and with great flair for much of her life. There are several of her works in the Tate Collection. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, at the Ullen Centre for Contemporary Art, or UCCA, a museum in what's known as the 798 Art Zone in Beijing, is a huge show focusing on three decades of work by Pablo Picasso. The 103 works are drawn entirely from the collection of the Musée Picasso in Paris, and the show is part of a cultural cooperation between the two countries that President Macron of France has described as, quote, experiencing an unprecedented dynamism. These initiatives, he said, reflect a common state of mind, that of rediscovering the essence of our bond and the bedrock on which our mutual understanding is built. Lisa Movius, our correspondent in Beijing, went to the UCCA to talk to Philip Tanari, the museum's director. She began by asking him about the scope of the exhibition. It's an overview of the first three decades of Picasso's work, um, which is always also to say in some way Picasso's life, from um, the earliest pieces from 1893. And it actually does go through the very late part of his career as well, but the focus is on, um, kind of goes up to about 1921. And so it's it's divided into five sections within a, with a coda that's kind of everything after. And it's looking at um, the development of, of him as an artistic talent a genius, in the words of the curator, uh, Emile Philippot, who is the head of collections at the Musée National Picasso Paris, which is where all 103 works come from. 
And I guess one thing that's especially significant is that this is the it's hard. It's in a way. It's I mean, quantifiably, it is the largest Picasso exhibition to happen in China. But it's not just that there are more pieces. It's that it's, you know, it's the most significant, um, let's say, assortment of Picasso works. Uh, it's also the most specifically curated presentation of Picasso to happen in China. So just a quick history of Picasso in China, exhibition-wise, the first happened in 1983, um, in the mid years. In actually, the interval between when his heirs gave the, what they call the Dacion, this gift in lieu of tax to the French state, and when the French state opened the museum uh, to house and show these works, which was, you know, he dies in 73, the Dacion is 79, the museum opens in 85. So in 83 already, 30-plus uh, pieces from that assortment came to Beijing, and including four or five that are in our show again, you know, mm-hmm. almost 40 years later. Um, Where did they show in Beijing? At the what what is now known as the Namok, the National Art Museum, Museum of China. China. Yeah, and it's actually quite interesting because only two years later, Rauschenberg had a major exhibition um, at at the Namok, as we call it. Uh, he, of course, came, uh, and that show eight, eight, eighteen days, three hundred thousand visitors, kind of changed the course of advanced art in China. Um, it's funny when you look at the, the early 80s because it's you know almost, I mean, China's been developing so quickly for so long, but even then, uh, two years makes a huge difference. So mm-hmm. the show was seen, but it didn't cause the, the kind of flurry of reactions um, that you might expect, actually. The other moments were in 2011. There was an exhibition also from the collection of the MMPP, the Musée National Picasso Paris, in the building that was built as the China Pavilion for the World Expo in Shanghai. That was a show of about 60-plus pieces. Mm -hmm. And then there was a a show of the Vollard Suite of lithographs, which is 100-plus pieces, but again, prints, in in 2014 that Mm -hmm. went to Chengdu. Um, so this, you know, here we have 34 paintings, 14 sculptures, 55 works on paper from a wide range, including some really key pieces like the Blue Period self-portrait, um, one of the, the Boisjolou pieces, uh, the Kiss, um, um, Celestine. You know, there are, there are just there are some real heavy hitters in there. Um, so I think for our audience, it's a great way to encounter Picasso for people who are, I mean, Obviously, there have been so many Picasso shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of recent ones, you know, MoMA's Picasso sculpture show uh, two or three years ago, or the Orsay Blue and Rose show, which is more or less the Byler Young Picasso show. So in a in a Western context, it now would make sense to focus, you know, Guggenheim's Picasso Black and White a couple of years ago on a specific theme or a specific period. Um, but I think... Like many of the shows we do, I mean, I'm always trying to give an overview of whatever artist. Sometimes, in the case of Rauschenberg in 2016, it was actually through one piece, Mm -hmm. the the quarter-mile painting that recapitulated his career over the course of 18 years or so. But um, with this, I just had the opportunity to present a Picasso show that was um, actually quite broad, and and that tells a sort of linear story, although in terms of exhibition design, we've tried to sort of deconstruct the linearity through these different rooms that you find in this design by Adrien Gardère. It's a way for an audience that I think I think many Chinese know who he is, know this name, Bi Jia is how it's mm-hmm. said in Chinese. Um, they know he's famous. They know they should know him. There's a famous um, high school uh, uh, history or kind of literature text in, uh, about Guernica. Um, he was a member of the French Communist Party, so he was sort of 
well regarded here, of course not during the Cultural Revolution, but at different points. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's sort of in the collective imaginary. He is a household name as everywhere else, but I, I imagine most people don't quite know why or what the big deal is. So um, this is a show that should answer that question. Going back to the other question of audience, you're going to expect some crowds here. Yeah, I mean, this is our first true blockbuster um, or blockbuster in, in any major sense. I mean, last year we were really pleasantly surprised with the reaction to Thought and Method, which is our retrospective of Shubing. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to hit the sort of numbers we need to hit to make to prove that this is the kind of show we should be doing and that more you know, should happen more often in Beijing, we need to have about twice as many visitors as we did for Shubing. So the so. gamble is, is, to, is, is Picasso twice as big a draw as Shubing here in Beijing, which is, of course, Shubing City. Yes. Um, but don't tell Shubing. We don't, <laughs> I've told him. He's, uh, he's fine. I mean, he, you know, the artists always want us to succeed. Yes. Um, but no, if we, could, if we could have, you know, in the neighborhood, it's actually, by, by a lot of Western standards, it's actually not even such a scary number. I mean, it's in the, you know... What's the number? It's, it's, it's about 100 and... Uh, between one and 200,000. Okay. Um, you know. So that boils down to how many a day? Fifteen hundred and twenty-six point five. Well, I heard it's that a, your first day open, you got two thousand. We did, yeah. We were over, over. Uh, we'll see. So, could you talk briefly about how the partnership with the museum in France came about? Absolutely. So, the story kind of goes back to January of twenty eighteen, which was shortly after we completed our restructuring. Um, and we were asked by the French state to organize basically an artistic salon for President Macron, mm-hmm. who was uh, coming on his shortly after his election, pre-yellow vests, uh, on his first state visit to China. And so in a very short time, like 15 or 20 days, it was over Christmas as well, we organized um, a quick show of some of the key leading figures in Chinese contemporary art, people like Xu Bing, like Lin Tianmiao, Zhang Xiaogang, uh, et cetera. Um, and he's, he came after his state dinner to UCCA uh, and spent two and a half hours just looking at this show and talking to these artists. And within a few months, um, this idea of more high-level exhibition exchanges between China and France had been actually put into his, uh, policy. I mean, it's, it's part of France's sort of set of policy directives for their relationship with China sort of going forward. Uh, this was affirmed in June of last year when Edouard Philippe, who's the French prime minister, came and met with the Chinese premier, Li Keqiang. It was reaffirmed in March when Macron went to um, went to France and at his kind of, sorry, when Xi Jinping went to France, Macron is often in France, um, at the end of their, their meeting at the Elysee on the, on, during this bilateral joint press conferences, uh, Macron actually name-checked you know this this policy director, but actually our exhibition, mm. um, and and then it was the, the closing shot was by um, the French Foreign Minister who came for the Belt and Road Forum a few months later. Uh, so the reason I'm telling you this all this detail is because the MMPP, of course, as the name suggests, is a national museum. So this is a piece of this it's, it's state patrimony. Um, we did this with the full uh, support, not financial, but um, sort of intellectual and uh, ideological of the French government kind of from the very beginning. And, I mean, France is just so great in terms of how they can coordinate between the bureaucracy of the embassy, let's say, and the ministry and the museums and the institutions, um, even, yeah, I mean, all of these different players. So 
it's, it's, it's a show that Amelia, the curator, had actually always wanted to do. And she's the one working on, I mean, she worked very closely on the Orsay show, on the, et cetera, um, presentations around the world, the Picasso Calder show that's up right now at their museum, for example. It had been her idea to explore Picasso's development and formation through key pieces of the collection. And so the opportunity to take this particular show, which was created, uh, I think, with a hope that it would go to China, but maybe without necessarily the security that that would actually come to pass, um, sort of came to us. And we we very quickly made a decision to go ahead with it. And all of those meetings kind of that I just mentioned were happening, of course, independent of our organizational process. But it was kind of a leap of faith because we knew we needed one big piece of support, which was for China to waive the customs deposit. So people, I mean, who've done business, you know, dealers listening to this podcast know what it means to try and bring work to Shanghai <laughs> for a fair. There's always the censorship process, which in the case of these works was extremely smooth. I mean, nothing was changed or touched. Um, but, you know, the bigger problem in this instance the customs process. So the way it works is the suspicion is that you're going to sell anything you bring into the country, so you need to prepay the duties, right. uh, which you get back when the work leaves the country. And there are financial instruments that allow you to do this for other works, you know, through our various shippers and logistics partners. And for a normal show, it's negligible because the interest on that amount of, you know, 20% of the declared value over the period of the show is is what it is. It's the cost of doing business. But for this show, we would have had to come up with a guarantee for 200 million euros, wow. um, which is yeah, a, a, a nine-figure sum. So um, it, was, it was clear that there should be no suspicion because this not only are we a non-commercial, non, you know, non-selling, obviously, institution, but this is the French state collection, right? I mean, it's on both sides. It's that's not why it's coming here. Um, and it was clear that there was high-level willingness for this show to happen, but um, how does that translate into an actual actual permission for customs to allow this in without doing its job, which is to collect these kinds of fees? That took some doing um, at very high levels of government. And um, we're really grateful for how it happens. And I hope that this will prove that this was a smart thing and that this should happen more and more. Prove to the government that you're not going to sell any Picassos. Well, I mean, just prove that, you know, because the logic of the government is cover your behind, right? And so no one will come to a government officer and say, well, it was really great that you let that, you know, you let that work through censorship or you let that piece through customs because in the end it made a wonderful exhibition possible, right? This doesn't happen. But this is sort of at the level where actually that might happen. Like Mm. customs came on the first day to see the show and they understand the vibe. And I think there is just this education process. You know, a few years ago, real estate developers in China would pretend to be interested in art and come up with all number of completely unreliable schemes and then look at, you know, where you were yesterday, Aranya, Mm -hmm. where we now have the second museum that we operate with a real estate developer is completely on board with the program and understands, you know, how mm-hmm. how this whole thing can work. So I think people people often lose sight of the fact that, you know, for all the tightening and all the restriction, there is also kind of simultaneously an opening and a, and a sort of enlightening process that's going on. Right. Like when the government wants things to happen, it happens. Yeah. Well, and it's also like the space between what is politically kosher or what is wanted to happen, but then they're also not necessarily the ones to make these things happen. I mean, that's like the story of private museums in Shanghai, right? There's mm-hmm. a city-level directive that there should be more of this kind of stuff. And then there are private individuals like Chiao or like Budi who kind of step in, and, uh, or, or Wang Wei and, and Liu Qian, and they kind of put things there, and they enjoy a sort of 
tacit to active level of support. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in the past, I, I'm guessing this is the first show on this level, not just Picasso, but any kind of partnership with a state museum abroad, with a private museum in China. I mean, they tend to go to the state institutions. And the thing about the state institutions is that they tend to... Um, they tend to function in a very official kind of way, and they tend not to place a huge premium on visitor experience. You know, exhibitions will happen to affirm the relationship between China and Italy, China and Spain, whatever, China and the Netherlands, whatever it happens to be. Um, but how many people come and what they learn is not is probably not the priority. I mean, there obviously have been some exceptions. Um, it's also just you know, it's very interesting. I think on I've, and I've, as I talk to kind of other curators and. Um, art administrators and people who kind of see a lot of shows. I mean, one reaction I've been getting about this show in particular is like, it is quite interesting to see these works in this very kind of industrial, contemporary context. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this beautiful exhibition designed by Adrien Gardère, which sort of places these five boxes inside the space. But you step out of these rooms or boxes and you're back in this, you know, Bauhaus um, factory chamber. It feels like an upside-down ship you know, columnless, high ceilings, um, kind of this mix of natural light outside and sort of, you know, highly controlled light levels inside. Um, and this kind of cycling and circling around is, um, it's just a different, it's a completely different kind of experience than, say, the show at the Musée d'Orsay, where it, some of the same paintings started looking like very 19th century, and you put them here and they start to look almost, you know, maybe not 21st century, but they certainly look, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of brings out the contemporary uh, aspect of Picasso. Mm-hmm. And then going back to the um, history of Picasso in China in 1983, where yeah. do, do you have many artists in Beijing who remember that show or have weighed in about it? Um, no, what you have more of is the, the people who study modern Chinese art, 20th century Chinese art. Yesterday we had a conference with five speakers giving very long papers, uh, very detailed papers about Picasso's various encounters. With They were mostly... Um, 20th century ink painters, sort of modern ink painters, people like... So, you know, the history of painting in China uh, in the 20th century, you know, it does involve a lot of people going to Japan and then to Europe in the years before, you know, in the 20s and 30s, and bringing back sort of the gospel of modern art um, to, you know, the advanced artists of a city like Shanghai or, or Beijing at the time. And, you know, it's a tumultuous period. A lot of those artists then got drawn into the anti-Japanese uh, war and the su- subsequent civil war, joined the Communist Party or were forced to Taiwan. You know, it's quite, it's quite messy. Um, but um, Picasso is obviously a part of that story. I mean, f- in first, so there's part of the story is about people introducing him and specifically Cubism, which he was, that was what he was known as first in China, was mm-hmm. the, the founder of Cubism. Um, but then also... You know, later in his career, so in 1944, he joins the French Communist Party, even though he was never really so political. Um, there was a big debate in China about you know, trying to square his still bourgeois uh, painterly interests with his political commitment to socialism. There's some really arcane you know, arguments where these uh, art critics of that time are sort of uh, walking in rhetorical circles, trying to, to make sense of all of that. I'm guessing um, it would take you about an hour to explain them. Yeah, but, but one, one, one really interesting moment is in 1956, 
Oh, well, two. I'll, tell, I'll speak about two really interesting moments. The first is in 1949, which, is, of course, is the year that uh, the People's Republic of China is founded. Um, that summer, there's this World Congress of, for Peace in Paris, and he paints a dove uh, that becomes the symbol of this kind of peace movement. You know, this is the period of the founding of the United Nations and this kind of post-war reconstruction period. So this dove of peace appears on the front page of the People's Daily, it's, and there are several subsequent editions. There's, you know, a second and a third dove. And every time he paints a dove, uh, we had a paper yesterday just about the dove. Every time he paints a dove, it, it, it appeared on the front page of the People's Daily in subsequently better positions, even at the end, right under the masthead, wow. above the fold. Um, so that, that was, that's, that's sort of the first way a lot of people knew Picasso. Um, in 1956, there was a World Expo in, um, in Paris, and the Chinese pavilion was basically a replica of the Forbidden City. Uh, it's this weird moment because people forget that before the anti-rightist campaign of 1957-58, uh, which is, for example, like when Ai Weiwei's father was internally exiled to Xinjiang, that was sort of the precursor to the Cultural Revolution. That first seven, eight years of socialism, aside from the, the, the great leap forward and the you know, ensuing famine that killed 40 million people, um, for intellectuals was actually, they were pretty heady times when people were thinking through what it meant to apply, you know, Mao's ideas of art for the people to a broader populace. So Picasso was like not, not part of that story. And so there's this famous moment when a delegation of um, Chinese artists goes to Paris and they, they all go to a, south, the south of France to La Californie and visit him and want to give him gifts and they've chosen to give him a door spirit, uh, you know, these kind of folk, new Chinese New Year's paintings like this sort of, of a, um, anyway, and, and it's, that, that's deemed too futile. It doesn't represent the new China, so instead they gave him an album of paintings by Qi Baishu. Um, Qi Baishu was kind of fancied himself the Chinese Picasso. Um, as did Zhang Daqian. I mean, Zhang, another, these great titans of kind of 20th century painting were, mm-hmm. were very inspired by, by his unlimited creativity and by his, uh, certainly by his fame and power, I think, as of well. Of course, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the perception of his fame and power in China? Obviously, there's the myth of the artist and the birth of the genius and some criticism about that name as well. But yeah. Also, how aware are people of the not-so-pleasant side of Picasso as a human being? What I, th- what I think is more interesting here is kind of just the encounter with, with works in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this presentation, this title, this... Um, curation comes from from Amelia it was very much her vision um, and I you know when you do a show like this you stand by the curator um, you know it works on this broader level of I, those of us who are have a finely honed critical consciousness will certainly take issue with with the myths um, I think we we sort of put them forward even by doing the show in the first place and we try to deconstruct them at the same time but also um, when you really get into the show, I mean, one thing I also really appreciate about Amelia's approach is she's kind of anti-biographical. There's just so much Picasso criticism has to do with, you know, who he was with at the time and, you know, how he was feeling on the day. And her approach is, is much more um, much more visual and much more historical. And so uh, that, I think, really comes through in, in, the, in the galleries. And, you know, honestly, at the end, it's, it's a chance for people to train their eyes um, by looking at stuff in the flesh. And you just have so many sort of, can I call them wannabe blockbusters in China right now, which are, you know, are sort of attracting all kinds of, (laughs) um, 
this is this is this is a lot of things. You what you can't really say is that it doesn't have substance. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of meat there um, to chew on, and um, yeah, I think I mean it's just I think in five years someone could do the next show, the more critical show, or the Dora Mar show, or yeah. you know, or any of these things. But it's um, you know, for us it was just. It's also about the Picasso show is one of the hardest things to accomplish just because there are also so many parties. There's the you know, the museum itself. There's the Reunion de Musée Nacional. There's the Picasso administration. You know, there's just a, a very extensive coordination process that's going on, and uh, to say nothing of costs. Um, so I feel like if we can pull this one off, it will be a great signal. I mean, to us, of course, but I think to the field in general and to Beijing where we've been a little bit starved for uh, top-quality exhibitions, even in, in relation to Shanghai a little bit in the last few years. So I think it's you know trying to get a lot of people excited and show that something like this can happen here now. All right, then. Well, thank you okay. very much. Thanks a lot. Picasso, Birth of a Genius, is at the UCCA Beijing until the 1st of September. And that's it for this week, and indeed for this season of the Art Newspaper Podcast. Thank you all for listening. The July-August print edition of the Art Newspaper is just out, and of course you can read it online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website you'll find a range of subscriptions, so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. You've probably already subscribed to this podcast, but if not, please do so at Apple Podcasts or wherever you normally listen to them. We'd love it if you could give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing. Thanks to Christina and Ibrahim and to Lisa and Philip. We'll be back in September with a new season. See you then. Bye for now and have a great break. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.